chapter 6. I'll begin reading at verse 4, and we'll go down through verse 15. And would you, if you're able and willing, stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, precious Word. This is God's Word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. I remember the first time I saw an elephant. My mother took me to the circus in my hometown. Fear and fascination both flooded my face. And I imagine that that circus variety elephant paled in comparison to the largest elephant that's ever been recorded in history. He died in 1956 in, in Angola. He weighed 24,000 pounds, and his shoulder height was 13 feet high. It's about as high as the backboard is above that basketball rim. Elephants are the largest land animals on the earth today. They are big, and they are loud, and when they are in the room, you cannot miss them. Over the next four weeks, as we prepare for our marriage conference, I want to invite you on a journey to face the elephants for the sake of your family. Elephants are issues. Elephants are things that you need to talk about as a family that you have ignored or hidden or perhaps not even seen. And I don't know what your elephant might be. There may be one, there may be a dozen. I don't know. Maybe it's marital discord that you've had in your family that you've held for years. Maybe the elephant in your family is your anger at your child or a child, your anger at your parents. Maybe that elephant in your family is a breakdown in, in communication that has led to a sense of bitterness and shutting down and watching the level of intimacy in your family slowly drop. All of us have elephants in the room. 
the question over the next four weeks is going to be, what are your elephants? And do you have the courage to face them head on? Today, I want to examine the patterns, the behaviors, the liturgies, if you will, of our families that reveal what the elephants are that we live with. You might just see an elephant or two in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This passage shows us five movements, five different ways to assess, evaluate, understand your families that help you begin to see the issues that may be subterranean, that may be under the surface that we need to be able to face together. Here are the five movements. movements. Listen, love, learn, liturgy, and look. Those are the five movements that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 15. Listen, love, learn, liturgy, and look. We're going to use these five movements to help us evaluate where the elephants in our family might be. Are you ready? Let's go look for some elephants. First, listen. The book of Deuteronomy, as many of you know, is the fifth book in the Torah. It is the final book of the Torah. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was at Mount Sinai, where for a year they entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord. And as, as they did that, they turned and they had a disastrous road trip in the wilderness for 40 years. And they disqualified themselves from entering into the promised land that God gave them. And so Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah, begins with Moses standing before the generation that comes after the generation at Mount Sinai to tell them that your parents were not faithful in keeping the covenant promises, and God's judgment was upon them by allowing them to perish in the wilderness. And Moses stands before a new generation, most of whom were born in the wilderness, to explain to them for the second time God's law. And the book of Deuteronomy begins, Moses reviews in chapters 1 to 3 and says, this is what happened when we came out of Egypt. And we stood before the Lord at Mount Sinai. And he tells them again the story of their mom and dad. And then in 4 through 11, then Moses goes on this series of very passionate speeches to call them back to covenant faithfulness. And the whole book of Deuteronomy, especially in chapters 13 through 26, is about God giving them The body of the book is God giving Israel through Moses the laws of Israel. And Moses is giving them some new laws, but mostly the the old laws that he gave to them at Sinai. And he's giving them to them them for a second time, which is where the book of Deuteronomy gets its name. Deuteronomy, second Namos law. Deuteronomy, the second retelling of the law. And when Moses gets to chapter 6, he gets to this very important centerpiece of the entire section of Deuteronomy, and it's called the Shema. It became a very important prayer for Jews, even to this day. And prayer goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in that prayer, it brings all the things of Deuteronomy together. Now, let's find some elephants. The first word listed in Hebrew in the Shema is the word shema, which means to listen. But in Hebrew, the word to listen meant more than just to hear. It always meant to hear and to obey. You know, when you have roommates, those of you who have a roommate and you're in your apartment and you say, hey, like we need, we kind of like work together to keep our apartment clean because it's something crazy ugly. Like we got to work together to keep this place straight. And you know your roommate heard you whenever they 
begin to clean the bathroom, right? Parents, I mean, you know, husband and wife, you know that your spouse heard you. Uh, I can hear Lauren say, preach to yourself here, brother. Preach to yourself. Yes, thank you. You know that the husband heard the wife when the husband actually does what they talked about together, right? Hearing in Hebrew meant to listen and to follow through on what was said. It meant to hear and to obey. Listen. The second word that it gives us is love. And just like listen, the word love, ahib in Hebrew, means more than just sentiment or preference or feeling. It means wholehearted devotion. It means your emotions and your decisions brought together. The word love, like the word listen in Hebrew, means more than just sentiment, preference. It means to have a wholehearted commitment to it. What Israel was to give their life to in obedience was to be what Israel gave the whole of their life to in devotion. They are to make the Lord their greatest object of worship, affection, and identity. In a word, they are to put God first in their life. And these two ideas of listen and love come together in the Shema in order for God's people to be set apart and be distinct from all the nations of the world. God said at Mount Sinai that they will become a kingdom of priests unto the world in Exodus chapter 19. And Moses now tells Israel, you have the chance to show the whole world how distinct our God is by living according to the justice and the wisdom of his holy laws. And when he says the Lord is one, you might translate it the Lord alone. Because in Hebrew, it's not just talking about the unity of God. It's also talking about the exclusivity of God. You are to worship the Lord is one. In other words, you are to worship the Lord alone. So you might translate this in the New Trinity Version. Listen up, O Israel, and worship the Lord alone. That's what the Shema said to the people of Israel. Listen and love. How does this help us evaluate our family? In the modern family, it is very hard to listen and to learn because we are just so cotton-picking busy. Amen? We do not really know what it means to listen and to love. And it's hard to know if we're healthy at all. I mean, as children grow older, our schedules only get more complicated and busier until they learn how to drive. And then once they learn how to drive, we have, we have other concerns, don't we? But we as families need to be able to listen and learn, especially those who lead our families. For some of us, um, we are so busy that we're just, uh, we're, it's just intense. We're distracted. We are, we are busy. And others of us, uh, you know, frankly, are, um, uh, we're, we just alleviate our boredom by distraction of, of uh, social media or watching TV or like a vegging out all the time. And it's really, frankly, been years since we've had like a weighty conversation in our families because we're just busy. And sometimes we're bored. And we tend to placate whether we're busy or we're bored with other forms of entertainment, other things to do. And then we don't really sit and dwell on those things that are most important. And we wait until just before our kids go off to college. You know this if you have children who are in college. Just before, when they're seniors, then you start getting really serious about talking to them about the things of God. But friends, by that time, you have um, 
perhaps delayed an amazing opportunity you had to constantly be able to pour into their life by developing patterns of listening and of loving. So how do we do that together? Let me give you three really practical ways to help your family listen and to love. First, on a Sunday afternoon, take a couple of hours on a Sunday and send your children to their room and ask them to just play and be quiet and rest (laughs) and see what kind of fierce um, reaction that you get from them because our children often don't know how to be bored because we don't either. But, but boredom is not the enemy of creativity. It actually helps foster creativity. And don't be afraid to take it. Sunday afternoons are great times to do it, to take your children and just say, hey, let's just spend two hours in our room quietly. And if that's a struggle for your family, it might be a sign to you as you evaluate the health of your family that you need to do it more regularly, not less. Or suggestion number two, Maybe we ought to do what uh, Moses taught the people of God to do back at Mount Sinai, which was to practice something called the Sabbath, which means one day in seven, we cease from working and we, we rest as a family. And you say to me, Blake, that's so unrealistic today. How could you possibly do that? Okay, well, let's start where you are. All of us, all of us have a schedule that basically follows from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Let's take that schedule. Let's break it, in, break it apart. Take your day and say 7 a.m. to 12 p.m. and make that one section of the day. 12 p.m. to 5 p.m., make that a second section of the day. And then 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. There's three sections of a day. There's seven days in a week. That leaves you with quick math, 21 segments of a day in a week. And just try to find seven of those five-hour chunks of time. Seven of those sections of time, whether it's an evening here or a morning there or an afternoon here, try to find seven of them and do the exact opposite kind of work that you do during the course of the week. So if you're always on the computer, then those five hours need to be time when you're away from the screen. If you're always counseling people, then those five hours cannot be filled with you counseling a friend who's in crisis. If you're always indoors sitting in an office, then those five hours might be that you're outdoors. If you're outdoors in manual labor, then those five hours might be that you're indoor in the air conditioning. Do you see what I'm saying? Everybody has a different Sabbath rhythm and a different Sabbath practice because we work in different realms and fields. Moms, dads, who spend all the time with your children. You might need to ask your spouse. You might need to find a babysitter. You might need to find somebody who can keep your kiddos so you can become a better parent by having some space away from them so that you can listen and you can love and you can process. Or a third way, if you're, if you're tempted like I am to get like a dopamine hit every time you look at social media, try the best you can whenever you're tempted to look at your phone to just sit down wherever you are and listen Silently for two minutes. (laughs) I know that seems weird, but it's not. If you learn to rest and give yourself permission that the ordinary Christian life is a life that rests. And whether you are overly busy or you feel like you're spinning your wheels and you're bored out of your mind, 
Learning to listen and rest in the love of God is the way that we can help evaluate the health of our family. Got it? All right. Number three, learn. Listen, love, learn. Number three, Moses calls us to learn. Look at verse six. He says, In these words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. We are to teach our children that the only metric for success in our family's life that will not devour us is the metric of the covenant promises of God. If you hold up to your children, the metric of success is you get out of college, you graduate top of your class, you get a good job, you don't embarrass the family, you'll destroy them. But if you teach them that the Lord your God loves them and is faithful to them and sings over them His covenant promises and has made them unique and special, then you help your children to grow with the credentials and the confidence to be able to face all the elephants of their life because they're rooted in the love of God. And kids, please listen to me. The, the, the strength of us to, be, to endure through the challenges of school comes from re-rooting ourselves in the fundamental identity that we have in Jesus Christ, that He loves us, that He sings over us, which is why Moses goes to the extent to say, you should teach these to your children, and you should teach them diligently. And what did Israel do out of gratitude to listening to Moses tell them to teach them diligently? Did they teach their children? No. God said, I'll provide for you every day. Every day I'll provide for you. And what did Israel do? They said, oh, okay, thank you. And they hoarded manna. And so what did God do for them? Well, he gave them a side dish of maggots for their leftovers the next day, didn't he? And then, and then what did he do? He said, I will, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Moses goes up to the Mount, Mount Sinai, and he's up there so long that Israel goes, oh my gosh, he's forgotten us. So they go to Aaron, the high priest, and they start taking off their earrings, and they throw them at his feet. And, they, and, and Aaron makes them a golden calf, and he pronounces to Israel in Exodus chapter 32, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And good things like food, Good things like material gifts, good things like gold can become ultimate things. And the cycle repeats generation after generation after generation. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that it only got worse until Israel was taken into exile. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 14.10 that the people of Israel loved to wander. Isaiah charged them with being so lazy that they loved to sleep. The idols of their heart grew deeper and deeper and deeper as they forgot the covenant promises of God. Now, what is our problem today? It's the same problem that our brothers and sisters in Israel had, isn't it? We've been delivered from sin and death. We know that it's through Jesus' finished work for us, but we show gratitude by making idols in our hearts too. We have this vision of the good life, and we have certain metrics by which we judge the health of our families. But if our metrics are measured by what the world considers success, you will fail at them every time because the metrics of the world are always changing. I mean, you go buy the biggest house you can find to pronounce to the world that you, are, you have arrived. And I promise you, in two years, your house will be woefully out of date. You can never reach the metrics the world, the world gives you because the metrics of the culture are constantly changing. There's only one metric that we can teach our children to judge their lives by, 
And that is the unfailing promises of God that are given to them. No matter if they live in Inola or Erie and Jaya, they have the covenant promises of God and they are theirs. That's the stability that we are to help provide for our children. And if we're not careful, we won't find the elephant in the room. It will find us. Because a lot of us don't see it. We're constantly feeding the elephant. We're pampering it. The vision of the good life through which we're throwing everything toward. Ask yourself this week, as an exercise to help you learn, ask yourself, husbands and wives, talk about this one evening together. What, what is our vision of the good life? When our children leave our house, what is it that, that they want us to say that we valued? The three great enemies of God's people are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the downfall of the church is that we really believe that the three great idols of our heart are the world, the flesh, and will take a little bit of Jesus. And we believe that if we can have all the world has and we can have all the desires of the flesh and we also go to church on Sunday that, are, that will be complete. But John says, no, they're all enemies and you cannot marry Christ and the world. You cannot stand with a foot in both worlds and expect the Lord to help your family to flourish. There are elephants in your room and we've got to have the courage to face them with the bold covenant promises of God. And it is impossible to do that unless Jesus is our master, unless he is our true peace. Because we all know, not only from God's word, but we all know from our own experience that the more and more the Lord blesses you with, we know this from our own experience, the more that he blesses you with, the greater the temptation is to forget the Lord's promises. Isn't that true? And so the solution is not to give everything away. The Lord has blessed some of us with amazing resources to help His church flourish and our family to flourish. But we have to be people who know the gospel so well that we're able, in whatever situation we find ourselves in life, that we look through the lens of the gospel. We are to listen. We are to love. We are to learn. And next, liturgy. Notice what he says in verses 7 through 9. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Listen, some of us uh, feel like we are bad parents because at like 20 minutes before bedtime, we don't cuddle our family together. We don't read them a story from the Bible. And we don't have our children sit dutifully with their hands in their lap prayed. And you feel like you're not a good parent if you don't have like a corporate family time of devotions every night. And I just want, I want to relieve you of that because of what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. Notice what it says. 20 minutes before bedtime, you shall sit with them. And that's not what it says. It says you shall teach them diligently and talk of them when you sit in your house. Okay, great. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, you're to teach them all the time. 
And so some of you are intimidated by the idea that we are to disciple our kids. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to read. I'm intimidated by it. Well, Deuteronomy 6 should free you up because for some of you, you're amazingly disciplined about having a devotional time for your family at night. Wonderful. Thank you. That's great. For the others of you, the aisle and target will be just fine. Thank you. And you need to be able to minister to them wherever you are. Because most of us are just trying to get through Aldi without like, I don't know, screaming at our kids. But it's in the moment when you're on the way, when you're faced with decisions, that you have the opportunity to constantly teach your children. Your children will pick up on your habits going to Target more so than your habits on Sunday morning at church. Because they will see whether you're a whole person of integrity or not. And Deuteronomy 6 gives you great freedom, whether you're a devotional before, 20 minutes before bed kind of family or you're just a, we're going to talk about the gospel all the time, everywhere and every way. Great. Amen and yes to both of those ways. But it is the liturgy of your family's life that actually shapes the hearts of your children. If somebody followed your family for a week, what would they say that you worshiped? If they followed your family for a week, and their job at the end of that week was to write down the family Shema. What would they say you worshipped? It's a convicting question, isn't it? Listen, love, learn, liturgy, and lastly, look. Look at, at verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, with houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards that you did not plant. And when you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, open your eyes to see the grace that he has given to you. And seeing with gratitude for grace will help you to be honest and live your life, not someone else's, because God's covenant promises are for you. Jesus was staging a new movement, friends. He was calling his hearers to a new way of being Israel, a new way of being a nation before the nations of the world, distinct a radical new way of living. And he solemnly announced his blessings toward Israel. But in the eyes of the world, this is even true in the Gospels, when Jesus pronounced his benedictions, it was the religious who saw that Jesus was pronouncing his benedictions on all the wrong people, the poor and the sinners and the meek and the lowly. And it were the religious who were so offended by that they were waiting in line for Jesus to bless them, and he couldn't see. He saw right over them because he saw through them. And the Shema calls us as a family back to evaluate our families in light of God's covenant promises of what he has accomplished and done for us. Jesus himself, of course, listened and loved and learned and did the ordinary things right, and he looked. And do you know what Jesus saw when he looked? He saw you, and he saw your family. And you know what? Do you know what our Lord's elephant in the room was? It was your family. Your family was the issue that he had to come to earth for. The brokenness of your family, the brokenness in your own heart. 
you were his elephant in the room. And Jesus came and he faced with courage the elephant in the room as he went to the cross. And he died with your family, with your covenant children on his mind so that you might have the courage and the passion to go to God's word and to see these movements and know how to listen and how to love and how to learn and how to have a liturgy and to be able to have eyes to see the grace with which he has blessed you in order to allow no other metric but the metric of the gospel to define the success of your family. And when that happens, you will be able to serve him only. Jesus faced your elephant head on in such a way that defied beauty. And it defied beauty to such an extent that since that time, it now defines beauty of all of art and literature since that day. Because his love lustered, as the Puritans used to say at Calvary. Verse 13, it says, It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear, and you shall not go after other gods. The gods are the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is strong. Listen, love, learn, liturgy, look. It's all right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 15. That's the way we evaluate the health of our families. That's the way we begin to find the elephants in the room. Let's pray together. Father, you have called us to be a people set apart. And we need your help to do that. For some of us, there are deep tensions in our marriage that we are afraid to talk about. Oh, Lord, did you give us the grace to know how to approach those subjects? Thank you, Father, for giving us counselors, men and women who help couples begin to process, for giving us pastors, elders, to help us begin to process the elephants in the room that we now see. Would you, Lord, help us to have the courage to face them? I pray that you would help us to be able to be proactive, that you would help us to be families who think about the way that our patterns of our family lives demonstrate our true Shema, our true family prayer. And may that family prayer, Father, be listen up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is God alone. And Father, may we be a people of one God, the true God. And Jesus, thank you that you came to provide everything we need to do that because you accomplished for us what we in our sin can never accomplish for ourselves, dying our death, having lived our life. And so encourage families as they come to the table today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray as we prepare for the offertory this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time we have to come together and to worship you this morning. 
Lord, we acknowledge that all good things come from you, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to be a people who do not take those good things for granted. Help us to show our thankfulness and our gratitude to you during this time of offertory. Help